the end of the year is full of hope for the future. But it's also a time to reflect on what's gone past. And in this podcast, we're doing that. The BMJ has long campaigned for better patient and public participation in research, making the case that it leads to better outcomes for patients and for society. But an article published in the Christmas edition of the BMJ goes further than that and talks about the insights that participants in research provide, insights that the academic team would never be able to have themselves. I'm Duncan Jarvis, and in this podcast, I'm joined by two of the authors of that paper, Seb Crutch and Martin Ross, who have been involved in neurological research as academics, and also by Valerie Mansfield, who's a member of the patient support group, um, whose husband and whose husband was involved in Seb and Martin's research. Also, just before we start, a quick apology here for the sound quality. You'll hear I'm on my backup microphone, but luckily the most important people in this podcast come through loud and clear. Yes, hi, I'm Seb Crutch. I'm a professor of neuropsychology at the Dementia Research Centre at UCL, and I'm very lucky to be involved in leading our rare dementia support groups as well. Thank you. And uh, Martin? Yeah, and I, I'm Martin Rosser, um, an academic neurologist at the National Hospital of Queen Square. And also joining us is someone um, who can give us an insight into what it is to take part in research and what it means um, to those people involved. Uh, Valerie, may I get you to introduce yourself? Yes, certainly. Thank you. Um, I'm Valerie Mansfield, and I've been a member of the Rare Support Dementia Support Group um, for five years now. Great. Um, well, this is uh, a lovely, beautifully written article with with um, sorry, what was going to say with some examples in it uh, that we'll get to in a minute that really illustrate your point. Um, but first, to to Martin and Seb, I just wondered. Um, what was it that inspired you to write this for the Christmas edition? Is this uh, is the public's involvement in research um, and acknowledging that been something that's been at the back of your head for a while? Uh, one of the main drivers for writing this uh, was to acknowledge quite how many of the good ideas, um, which people like Martin and I get credited for, actually a large part of the credit really lies elsewhere. Um, we often talk um, about expertise, and I feel that a lot of my expertise comes not from book learning or academic study, but from simply having the privilege of being involved in conversations with many, many people in our area um, work, living with a rare form of dementia. So those uh, our familiarity, much of what I understand about those conditions has come from meeting not just one or two people um, with, a, for example, a dementia that affects their vision or their language or their personality rather than their memory, um, or which affects them at a very young age, but from multiple, multiple conversations. So you begin to hear the commonalities, the common threads and themes, the shared experiences and because of that, you also pick up on the things uh, which perhaps sit outside either recognised knowledge or diagnostic criteria for those conditions. Um, 
And sometimes those are one-off experiences. Of course, we're all different people living with these different health conditions. Um, but often you start to hear a couple of things which initially you thought sat outside the norm of that condition. Then you realise actually, no, there's, there's a new common thread here, something which hasn't been recognised or articulated as, as clearly before. Um, and so I suppose the drive for writing this article is partly to reflect um, the way um, in which much of that knowledge emerges um, and also to, I suppose, in a negative sense, at a slight uh, frustration with how people often talk about so-called patient and public involvement or PPI, which uh, is very important, very well recognised now, fortunately now becoming a core part of academic practice, grant funding and so forth, but which can sometimes be a little bit dry. Uh, and sometimes doesn't capture all the aspects of contributions that people with a lived experience of these conditions make. So wanting to bring a different perspective and say sometimes you can make really, really important um, changes and contributions to a research field um, or to how we understand a particular health condition without sitting on a committee or without proofreading a document, but actually just by being generous enough to be open and honest about the questions, the experiences, the uncertainties you have of living with your condition. Martin, do you have anything to add there? Yes, I mean, I think my comments very much reflect Seb's, um, and some of it comes from struggling with PPI um, in the field of the diseases that cause dementia. So as well as being a neurologist, another part of my, my daily work is um, with the National, Health, uh, National Institute for Health Research, NIHR, where as director of dementia research and the NIHR has a long history of supporting um, public and patient involvement but that's really been a challenge if somebody's cognitively impaired um, it's hard enough I think sitting on committees and keeping track of what's going on for all of us but if you're cognitively impaired it's a real challenge and so what tends to happen is either you seek that involvement via carers, that's very valuable. Um, but it still misses the person who may be living with the dementia as their disease. And so you tend to end up with people who are at just one end of the spectrum. And that's not that, rep that representative. And so this is an opportunity through these stories to move away from that, um, where you really can um, sense genuine involvement. Now, some of those examples were not with people who um, were directly affected uh, and having the disease, but many were. And that comes back to Seb's point that we're, we're, as diagnosticians, we're brought up to learn how to diagnose something on the basis of the canonical standard disease. But diseases in one sense, they're only words that we use to try and describe something if it's useful to either treat, intervene, or, or, or to provide a prognosis. And they go wrong. And some of the examples that Seb's explored, this condition of posterior cortical atrophy, where there's a problem with how the brain processes visual signals, some of them just seem counterintuitive. They, they, it's not what we've been told you know, people whose the world suddenly is upside down or who have that visual crowding in one of these examples. But it's, it's hopefully these case histories remind us that it, if you really do listen, this is what the world's like. 
is not necessarily the world that's been superimposed by diagnostic criteria. So it's not just a case of giving those insights that might totally change um, or, or really be the center of, of some research. It could also be about uh, uh, challenging kind of um, kind of failing ones. Absolutely, and giving giving those experiences space to grow, and that's not always easy in busy clinics, but that's what we need to do. And Valerie, um, we've been talking about this from a very sort of academic place at the moment, and I wondered, is this a conversation that's going on uh, in the public community, in the in the community that um, that you represent? Um, I think it is uh, certainly with rare dementia support. It isn't actually in the general public community because many people don't understand rare dementia. So I think that um, the opportunities that we had, my late husband was diagnosed with posterior cortical atrophy in 2015. Um, but unfortunately, there were many years before that where things didn't work or something wasn't right. Um, but we then had the opportunity to join rare dementia support Um with Seb leading um, his team. And I think um, I was also involved in the carer support group. And now, um, since Peter died two years ago, in the bereaved carers. So I've never been discharged, which is something that doesn't very often happen mm -hmm. in many other situations, as far as I'm concerned. You have to then start to join another group. I'm thinking, oh, you know, that's hard work. Um, so I think that um, the examples that um, Seb and Martin have put in their paper uh, is there are lots of particularly pertinent ones, but I think for me, um, and if I may say this, one of the things that we found, and I know I'm not alone here in saying that all the researchers were very approachable, amenable, and they always gave something back. And in my experience, sometimes um, you don't always have that information. So you may have something where you're in an informal discussion, certain things are bothering you. You can have that discussion, but actually, um, Seb and his team would be able to signpost us to other people or say, would you like to take part in some of these research projects, which uh, my husband Peter thought was absolutely amazing to be able to do that and contribute something at a time when lots of other things seem pretty dismal. So um, we found those informal discussions absolutely invaluable. And before we go on, a quick message from the BMJ's Christmas charity this year. Hi, I'm Sabine Goodwin, the coordinator of the Independent Food Aid Network, or IFAN. IFAN is the charity that the BMJ has chosen for its annual appeal this year. IFAN supports a range of emergency food aid providers operating across the UK, including over 400 independent food banks. Their work has never been needed more. IFAN also campaigns and advocates for the systemic changes that would reduce the need for charitable food aid in the first place. You can find out more about our work and support us through our donate button at www.foodaidnetwork.org.uk. Thank you very much indeed for your support. Seb, that seems like from that experience, you think a, a critical part of the research process there it's not really doing research, it's just listening. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Where does, when does research begin? <laughs> Is it? Um, and actually, I suppose one of the things I feel strongly about is that the listening is part of the research. If 
well, maybe it's part, we had one project, um, which was around the time we were writing this, uh, a residency at the Wellcome Collection in their, in their hub, their hub award. And Martin very helpfully in the months before we began the award and were planning, trying to plan our time in this residency between scientists and artists and people with dementia, very helpfully made the distinction between search and research. Um, and so I suppose I would put the listening part and the kind of conversations that Val's referring to in, in the search category. So it's absolutely core to research, but it doesn't necessarily look, feel or smell like research in the sense of the bookish or lab-based images we have in my mind, our minds when we, when we hear the word research. Um, uh, and I think another thing, I guess, if, if we also say that research begins with, a, often we talk about research beginning with a hypothesis, um, or a really good research question. Um, and this sort of work and these kind of conversations, I think, just raise the the obvious, but perhaps less talked about point of, well, where did that, where, where did that question come from in the first place? Or why that question rather than another one? And so we're talking about the origins of research. Absolutely. Here, I and um, I mean, the BMJ, um, we've covered uh, that a lot, but I think if you were to speak to our um, research team, um, talking of the research question, the research questions that are actually really good are the ones that have involved patients and answer the questions that, that matter to, to people as opposed to, to potentially academics. Um, Martin is director of uh, research at, um, sorry, director of dementia research. Uh, I suppose that, that's uh, particularly pertinent to you. Yes, I mean it's um, it, it's a balance here um, because I think some questions, particularly in, in lab-based research, are moving towards questions that will have um, hopefully impact in the future, but that may be somewhere ahead, and and that's still fundamentally important. But certainly when you get to the more clinical end, then yes, and that's where the, the, the general narrative comes in. I, I mean, it's um, case histories have a, they, they've gone out of fashion a little bit at mm. times, but case histories in, in medicine are where an awful lot of things start. And that's what we're talking about here, their personal narratives. Um, and Valerie, you mentioned some of the, the things that... Um... Martin and Seb wrote about. Um, so let's move on to, to those now. Uh, could you take us through uh, a couple of the examples um, of people's involvement uh, in research that's been really key to, to that research insight? Yes, one of the um, examples um, that we talk about um, in the paper uh, of the type that Valo is just talking about, where someone's already participating in research um, but they uh, shape it or take it in a direction we hadn't anticipated. Includes someone who was taking part in a in a study which involved reading some words, but they perceived and saw those words in a in a letter by letter fashion and couldn't see the middle letters of the word in a way that made us realise that people living with this condition, PCA, this visual form of uh, dementia, um, actually have an exacerbated form of what most of us have in our peripheral vision, something called crowding. So where um, objects in, in your vision kind of 
blend in and confuse one another and prevent you from seeing things clearly. Um, but there are also examples in the paper of, uh, I suppose, at the much earlier stage of research where things that people have said have sparked whole new directions of research. And that ranges from quite practical um, forms of research. So at one support group meeting, someone, a member of the group, one of our co-authors, Simon Rosser, um, talking about how confusing it was that there were so many different labels for this condition um, and highlighting really that there had been no consensus around how to define this condition um, for research or clinical terms, which led us to an uh, international piece of work with lots of colleagues used to seeing people living with this condition PCA. Um, and also one example not in the paper, um, but described elsewhere is of um, a group, the group that Val has talked about, this um, support group uh, for people living with or caring for someone with this visual form of dementia, who engaged with us in a, an exercise to describe the stages of this condition, how what people might expect as the disease uh, continues. And uh, someone uh, mentioning that their mother living with PCA had recently said to them, am I the right way up? Uh, sort of a question that none of us caught us off guard, none of us had ever thought about, unless you've been probably impressively drunk or very seasick, you probably never had to ask yourself whether you're the right way up or not. But it pointed us into, uh, it was an experience, it was a comment, a question and uncertainty that chimed with many other members of the group who suddenly started talking about, oh yeah, sometimes I'm walking along the pavement and I feel like I'm about to fall off the edge of the world. Or other people talking about um, their relatives and loved ones walking in a tilted fashion, but denying that they were, thinking that they were upright or sitting seemingly upright in a chair and actually being bent forward the whole time, that made us realise the kind of the depth of not just visual problems um, in this condition, but also of balance problems and of multisensory um, experiences, um, which took us off inspired was the, you know, that very comment, that question, am I the right way up, was the, was the title for a whole grant funded piece of research with balance experts um, looking at the sort of motor um, vestibular balance and visual um, senses and, and how that those types of information are combined or miscombined in people living with this condition. So I think many different examples. Yeah, and there was an example in the paper as well um, where the key insight about her, the genetic basis of, um, of dementia came in. And Martin, perhaps you could tell us about that. Yes, I, I I was just thinking about that example um, in response to my answer to your question about um, patient-directed questions, what's important to them. And I suggested that the basic research might be, be rather slow before leading to something and that these might be rather distinct. But the example in the, pa in the paper suggests it's, that's a much more porous distinction that I'm suggesting, because what happened here is that um, with a colleague, John Hardy, um, geneticist, and I were, were interested in um, familial Alzheimer's disease. I'd come across a couple of, um, of potential families, and, and John was very interested in this as a, a means of trying to understand how the disease starts. So the question we were interested in is why you know, what causes Alzheimer's in, to run in, in the family where it comes on very early. And then this was back in the late 1980s, Carol Jennings, and I, I mention her because she has written very widely on this, wrote to me to say, I've 
got lots of people in my family who are getting the disease in their 50s. Why is it? So you're correct. Her question was exactly the same as our question and was an extremely important question. And, and that led to John Hardy identifying the, um, the gene that, that caused the, the disease in, in that family and in others. Valerie, you spoke there a little bit about um, how your husband uh, enjoyed being part of the research process that that might help answer some of these questions. And I wondered, um, do you know what he felt about being acknowledged in that? Do you think he would have liked to have uh, had his contribution to, um, to that research be sort of publicly acknowledged in some way um not not necessarily um he was quite a humble man and he'd achieved many things himself in his life without expecting acknowledgements for things so um i'm not sure that that was why he took part um certainly from both our points of view and that's why i'm still keen to be involved now um i know he would have been very pleased and proud that the research was continuing and developing at such a rate that so many more people would have access to um, the examples and probably more support um, than many people with rare dementias have had over many years. So I think that the work that the um, RDS, the Rare Dementia Support, um, and the Dementia Research are doing is just phenomenal because it's reaching a larger number of people. So he would have been very pleased that that could have been used for um, a wider number of people to have been included and supported. But I don't think he would have looked for personal acknowledgement himself. I mean, Seb will probably (laughs) bear that out as he knew Peter. I'm not sure if that answers your question. (laughs) No, it does, but it leads me into um, wondering about that kind of acknowledgement. Um, Because for academics, uh, when research is good and successful, you know, that comes with not only acknowledgement, but, you know, progression in, in your career and and uh, everything that goes with that. And uh, it just made me wonder about that sort of dynamic and, and you know, the duty of, of medicine to really um, acknowledge and reward the public's participation in, in research. Yeah, I do. I think you're quite right that people do like to be acknowledged. And I think that... Um, all of the team that Seb leads um, and the wider group of people that they're involved with, they would always acknowledge it. Um, So during sessions or afterwards or when they write to you or, so I think that the acknowledgement has always been there, um, whether it's, and especially on a personal basis, which, which would have meant more to Peter than having his name in lights or, you know, but I think that just to be acknowledged as somebody who's taking part and, as Seb was saying, quite often some of the questions have come from the informal discussions, um, which is one of the great things, isn't it, that involving the public and people who are involved with rare dementia um, will hopefully benefit many more people. So I think the acknowledgement has always been there with rare dementia support, but it's you know been done on a personal level. And now if there are more and more things that can be acknowledged in journals, in articles for research, I personally, and I know Peter would have thought that was, you know, the right way forward. I think it's a way in which um, the kind of discussions that I know have happened and continue to happen in BMJ and elsewhere about authorship um, and the involvement of people with a lived experience, I think continues to be helpful because, of course, there are many different types of contributions 
absolutely when people, um, Martin's already mentioned how often the, the questions that people living with the condition and the scientists researching it, often the same questions. And so when those questions are followed up or thought about in, in a way that contributes directly to a paper, absolutely no reason why, and certainly many journals would encourage um, people with that lived experience to have their contributions directly recognised in authorship. But there are also many other types of contributions, um, some much more slow burning, some much more general, um, which can inspire research where authorship directly wouldn't necessarily be appropriate, um, but which acknowledgement in the papers um, and certainly a shaping of the text and the description of how one arrived at the question in the first place is, is appropriate. Um, we give the example in the paper of someone, uh, Martin um, uh, and I had the privilege of working with many years ago, uh, the artist William Utamolan, who's inspired countless strands of research and teaching within our group. Um, and I don't think it would be appropriate to um, include him as an author on the paper posthumously, um, but certainly to acknowledge the contribution and the ways in which his experiences um, of his uh, condition and the way he painted and expressed something about not just the biology, but um, the lived experience of, of Alzheimer's disease have continued to contribute to much of our work. Um, and so there are different forms, different ways of acknowledging and, and completely endorse what Val says about the importance of the, the personal relationship, the ongoing relationship as well. And it's so, so help, helpful and satisfying um, when one gets to have ongoing relationships with people who've contributed to research and not just for them to be, feel like guinea pigs or participants in an experiment, but people who are part of an ongoing conversation of which a research paper may be part, but by no means the sum total. You've been listening to Martin, Seb and Valerie and the article that prompted us to have this discussion, inspired by chance, valuing patients and formal contributions to research, is available now on bmj.com. That's it for this podcast and for our Christmas period. Next week, we'll be returning to our normal schedule and hearing more from the front line of healthcare with our second wave podcast. Until then... I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.